what the Buddha saw so clearly and what we can each see for ourselves is that the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness exist within the mind. When we look at the suffering that's in the world, and it's not hard to find, the causes of injustice, the causes of exploitation, the causes of our own personal suffering arise because of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger. In order to come to a place of freedom in ourselves, and peace in the world, in our own world, and in the world at large. We need to understand how these forces are at work in our own minds. I know that you remember there's an old comic strip, Pogo. There was one, one famous comic strip where he says, I have met the enemy, and it is us. That insight, Uh, could have arisen at IMS. Because as we sit and as we look at our own minds, we begin to see all the forces, all the different forces at work. Tonight I'd like to talk about five particular qualities of mind, which in the Buddhist terminology are called five hindrances, five obstructions. The first of them is the force of desire. Now, the word desire, like love, has many different meanings. One meaning of the word desire is that of greed, of clinging, of grasping, of lusting for something. Another meaning of desire is the desire of motivation, simple motivation to do something, a desire to do something. And that's ethically neutral. Depends what the desire and motivation is for. Then there's the desire, we use this term, for the satisfaction of basic human needs. the, The desire, the need for food or shelter, which is not particularly the force of greed or grasping in the mind. In speaking this evening, I'm speaking of the first kind of desire. That is that energy in the mind which is craving, which is grasping, which is wanting, which has that greed component to it. Why does it arise? Why does does desire arise in our mind, this kind of desire? We live in a world continually encountering pleasant sense objects the five physical senses and objects of mind. This is the nature of the human realm. We come into contact with pleasant sights and sounds and touches and tastes, not rest. Because of this contact with pleasant experience, out of this contact with pleasant experience, when we're not mindful, when we're not aware, our conditioned habit of mind 
is to grasp. I like it. I want it. I want to hold on to it. I don't want it to leave. We can see this at work in our own lives when we look at our strongest attachments. What are we attached to? Most of us, in one way or another, are quite attached to the body. Against all the evidence (laughs) of it lasting. (laughs) You know, we know that it gets older. We know that it gets sick. We know that it dies. But that knowing doesn't make a dent in terms of our attachment to it. And so when it does all those things, we suffer. We can look at our attachments and our desires, our clinging, our craving, in relationship to other people. Or perhaps the people we're closest to. To look at that quality of attachment and really distinguish it from the feeling of metta. We can see desire at work, not only with our bodies or with certain people, but also with things or situations where we're wanting certain things to happen. We're craving for them to happen. Of course, there's a whole range of intensity to this force of desire and how it plays out in our lives. It can range from an obsessive passion, you know, where the mind is just completely enveloped. It can be an addictive craving. And we all know, to some extent or another, the power of addiction. What is that? It's not some mysterious thing. It's, it's the very strong force of craving in the mind, of wanting in the mind, of desire in the mind. This may also take the form of recurrent fantasies. Or it can be just a passing whim of the mind. You know, going along and, oh, pizza would be nice. And then just, just in that moment, a, pass, a passing one, a passing desire. Now, in the world, there's a, there's a huge scope for the play of this force. And especially in this culture, I mean, this, the menu is enormous. On retreat, the field narrows quite a bit. But it doesn't really slow down this particular energy of wanting. You know, the mind still finds many opportunities for wanting to arise. And it's just interesting to go through the day in this rather cloistered environment and just to notice when this force comes into play. How would you feel if somebody were walking in your favorite walking spot? (laughs) You finally found a place where you can walk and you like it and everything's... That's that's a wanting, that's an attachment, that's a desire. (laughs) One of the most noticeable uh, expressions of desire uh, when I'm on retreat I just notice the difference when I'm walking, doing the walking meditation, either in metta or vipassana, back and forth, back and forth, and how I walk when I'm going to lunch. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I can be walking just as slowly. It's not even a speeding up, but there's a, <laughs> there's a leaning forward into the next step. It's just that desire. It's that wanting mind. You know, or the play of lustful fantasies in the mind. People can get lost for a long time in them. Or just enjoying one's own internal dramas. You know, or sit for a long time. It comes in a more subtle form, this force of desire, into the meditation practice itself in the form of expectation. You know, and this is a very subtle aspect of the hindrance. We're sitting not simply being with things as they are and as they're unfolding and allowing them to unfold, but there's this force of wanting it to be a certain way, the expectation for it to be a certain way. Now, this expectation, just like that desire pulling me forward into lunch, if you notice carefully when there's expectation in the mind in the sitting or the walking, the expectation also pulls us forward. It pulls us out of the moment, and so we get unbalanced. This expectation comes in often on retreat when we have some model or other of how it should be. Now, if we have any model at all, it's a setup for expectation and then disappointment, discouragement. In one of the retreats when I was doing metta intensively, it became very noticeable to me because I would be doing the phrases and doing the phrases and I would be continually checking back well, am I feeling it? Am I feeling it? You know. And it reminded me of when I was a young kid. I was about, I don't know, eight years old or so, and I planted my first and only garden. <laughs> and I planted it, and I was all excited as things started coming up. And as the carrots started coming up, I got so excited that I kept pulling them out to see how they were doing. <laughs> it's not a very good way to garden. But that's what we can do with our practice. You know, when we're always checking back to see, well, how's it doing? <laughs> that's, that's a way expectation as desire actually becomes a hindrance. It becomes an obstruction. We're not simply allowing it to happen. Desire happens in our practice when we try to hold on to some nice state that has happened. Maybe we begin to feel something really wonderful, feel a lot of metta or some deep samadhi. And then the mind starts clinging to that so that when it goes, again, we suffer or we get frustrated. Sometimes we practice trying to recreate a good past experience. We've had some good past experience. And then we're practicing with that desire for it to happen again. This is like dragging a corpse around. It is. I mean, that past experience, no matter how wonderful, is gone. It's dead. Finished. 
can we just let go and let everything unfold in its own time, in its own way? Desire, wanting, greed, grasping, you know, in all the ways the mind holds on is an obstruction for us. In doing the metta, a very particular kind of care is needed because desire or attachment is the near enemy of metta. That is, it's a state that can look like it. It can look like love. It can look like caring, but actually is not. You know, and in our lives, we confuse these two states a lot. We confuse the love of metta with attachment, with holding on. People find it often very difficult to even imagine loving without attachment. And yet they're two very different states, very two different energies in the mind. It's helpful to look very carefully at this so that we learn the difference, we learn to distinguish when desire is present of any of these kinds. When desire is present, there's a wanting. When metta is present, it's a giving. Two very different expressions. You know, classically, as, as metta is taught traditionally, it's suggested that people, especially in the beginning, don't do metta for beings of the sex to which they are, tra- are attracted. Precisely because you know, you may be doing metta for this person and start out with this very loving feeling and then very subtly it slips into this near enemy you know, of desire and we might not know it, we might not recognize it. In any event, whoever you're doing it for, be aware of this so you stay really conscious of the difference. Just as metta, loving-kindness, builds concentration, it builds samadhi, the force of desire in the mind, of wanting, of grasping, of attachment, all the expressions of that energy obstruct concentration. That's why it's called a hindrance. That's what it means in the Buddha's teachings. It's a hindrance to concentration, to samadhi, and therefore to wisdom. It's a hindrance because we get caught, we get ensnared, we get entrapped in the web of desire, in a lot of thinking and reflecting. The the common example of this that happens on retreat very often is the Vipassana romance. People come, most of you don't even know one another, not supposed to really be looking at one another, but somehow you've scoped out everybody on the retreat. 
And at some point, you know, the mind just starts creating, starts projecting this whole scenario in the mind. You know, somebody who's attractive to you, and you start building the story you know, of meeting them and of meeting at the retreat and having an affair and getting married and <laughs> having kids and getting divorced. <laughs> the mind can spend a lot of time in these fantasies. And it's all just desire playing itself out in the mind. It's the force of desire, and it's obstructing a deepening of the practice. It's obstructing concentration. It's obstructing wisdom. Not only does it hinder concentration, there is something else that's very important to understand about this energy. And that is, in the most fundamental sense, it does not deliver on its promise. Now, why do desires keep ensnaring us because there's that voice you know do this and you'll be really happy how many times do we have to do it how many times do we have to see you know we go after different pleasures different experiences pleasure of happiness because of the pleasant feelings that we get. The problem is, and it's very obvious when we stop and really consider our experience, our lives, these pleasant experiences don't last. The pleasant feelings don't last. They're nice in the moment. It's not denying that. They are nice in the moment, and then they're gone. How many pleasant experiences have you had in your life? Countless. Can't begin to count them. If they were really satisfying, if they were essentially satisfying, you would not be here. (laughs) You wouldn't, with your knees hurting and your back hurting, (laughs) having to say these phrases over and over again. (laughs) You're trying to satisfy to satisfy ourselves deeply, completely, in a meaningful way, through the gratification of desire, is like trying to quench our thirst by drinking ocean water, by drinking salt water. The more we drink, the thirstier we get. And that's the cycle, very often, of our lives when we're not paying attention. Well, just this, just this, just this. And I'm sure you recognize that pattern, and I see it in myself so often, where we live our lives with the next event on the calendar. You know, and then it's always like the next event, and then the next event, as if somehow it's going to ever come to rest, ever come to complete. It never does. We have to be looking in a different way. This doesn't mean that we should never enjoy different sense pleasures and that these experiences don't bring a certain kind of happiness, because they do. So that's not, the, that's not the implication. Rather, it's to recognize very deeply, and not intellectually, that we recognize from an examination of our own lives, our own experience, 
that this kind of happiness is very transitory. It's not really what we're looking for. They're okay, they're fine, but we shouldn't build our lives around them, as we often do. One of the last retreats I did, I had a very strong image come up for me, which was a big help in terms of understanding the meditation practice and the hindrances. As I was doing my practice, it felt like I was just uh, going along on a big highway, big freeway. And along the highway were these big billboards advertising various things, various amusement parks of different kinds of amusements. And for a while I noticed what my mind was doing. It would see the billboard and my mind would just automatically get off on the exit, go down the road, get lost in the amusement for however long. Then finally I'd sort of wake up to where I was and have to drive back and get back on the highway. Well, after a while of noticing that my mind was doing this, it was continually getting off, getting lost, having to come back again, I started noticing the billboards with a little more awareness, a little more attention. But the habit was so strong that I would still get off, but I'd get right back on. I wouldn't go all the way down the road. I'd get off the exit, oh, I don't have to do that. As I watched this more and more, I got to a point where I was just going along the highway these billboards were there, I knew that it was a dead end. I knew that I could go down there, spend a little time, I just have to come back again. And there was enough insight to see, I don't even have to get off the highway. I can just go right by the exit. It was tremendously freeing. So how do we stay on this highway of awareness? or this highway of metta. One way, one thing we need to do, is to recognize the billboards. We really need to see when something is being advertised in the mind. Some fantasy, some desire, some want, some drama, whatever it is that's enticing you. It is just a thought in the mind or an image in the mind. That's all it is. So if we see it, if we recognize it as a billboard, that's the first step. We realize we don't need to exit. We can come back to the next phrase. May you be happy. May you be healthy. We don't have to leave the highway. The insight that helps us do this is reflecting on the impermanence of it. And we know this both from a reflection and our own experience over and over again. How many times have we gone off, gotten lost, and come back? And then it's gone. If we can remember beforehand, oh yeah, this is just another impermanent diversion, that gives us the strength. Now, through that power of mindfulness, we say, I don't have to do that. I can stay right on track here.
this reflection on the impermanence of things is not only helpful in terms of staying on track in our meditation, it's tremendously important in terms of the choices we make in our lives. I'm sure you have all had the experience of rather strange phenomenon of time speeding up as we get older. It's like, it's just speeding by. Sometimes it feels like a year is a long weekend. (laughs) It does. I mean, another year has just gone by. Well, given this, given how fast it's all going by, we need to be very conscious about the choices we're making. Now, it's, it won't do to wait until our deathbed and think, oh, if only I had done something else. If only I had done this, which really would have been of value to me. We have to see that now. We have to ask those questions now. Given the fact that all of these experiences are changing impermanent things, what is really important? What is of value? I see this as an essential question. Another way of learning how to stay on the highway not having to get off each time, or not being pulled off each time, is understanding in a different way, and perhaps a deeper way, the the meaning and the power of renunciation. Sort of in our culture, renunciation is not big. (laughs) We're not getting this message that (laughs) renunciation is a good thing. And mostly when we hear about it, even if there's some part of our mind that might consider it to be a good thing, we really feel it as a burden. You know, well, it's something I'll do that'll be good for me someday, but there's not a lot of joy in it, you know, when we first consider. But I think there's another whole way of looking at this, and that is seeing that addiction is the burden and the renunciation is the freedom. When we're not compelled to buy into every desire that arises in the mind. Now, an image that came to me, it's like watching TV. Just imagine what your mind would be like if you desired everything that was advertised. <laughs> it would be horrendous. It would be a hell realm. You know, it would be the mind... Just be the mind reaching out, grasping, wanting for all these basically useless things. Well, we've gotten pretty good. We've gotten pretty sophisticated, you know, in how we watch TV. We can basically mute it, you know, and let them just go by. But we're not so good with the commercials in our minds. We bite a lot more often. But the same freedom relative freedom that we experience in watching TV and letting the commercials just go by and not buying in, in exactly the same way, there's a tremendous freedom when we can sit back and watch all these impulses in the mind, all these wants, all these desires, all these cravings, 
and just let them come and go. That the renunciation is actually the place of freedom. And the wanting of it is the burden. I'd like to suggest a very simple experiment. Now, over the course of the next days, the next time you notice that there is some strong desire in the mind, some strong wanting, it might be in the form of an expectation about the practice. It might be some fantasy. You know, if the mind is engaged in you're wanting something. The next time you're aware that there is strong desire, strong wanting. See if you can remember to pay attention to what that state is like, what it feels like. And then just be with it. No judgment about it. Just be with it, be with it, be with it. And then notice what it's like when the desire goes. It's really quite amazing. Because then we see for ourselves that sense of relief when the desire is gone. It's almost like being let out of the grip of something. But we have to see this directly in our own experience. It's not enough to hear the words. We have to know it for ourselves. It's not a question of just believing what somebody says. And we need to examine. A very simple example of this, which maybe some of you can relate to, now, if you were like most other people in this country, you probably receive endless number of catalogs. And I just watch my mind being seduced you know, into looking at catalog after catalog. And then somehow, when I just put it down, it's just this huge relief. You know, this is the same process. You know, it's getting caught up in that energy of wanting whether it's kind of a gross form or just a subtle form, and then how easy the mind feels when the wanting is gone. You can see it in groups, not, not on retreat when you're keeping silence, but it's something I notice very often in social groups, kind of the impulse or the desire to say things. Sometimes they're useful to say, sometimes completely useless. <laughs> oh, no. And just to watch, just to watch those impulses and to experience the freedom of being able to let the impulse come and go without having to act on it. It just opens up a whole quiet, peaceful space for ourselves. In working with desire, we need to appreciate that it is a very strong, habituated force in the mind. This is not, this is not a shallow thing. You know, according to the Buddhist teaching, desire is the driving force of samsara, you know, of this whole round of life and death and rebirth. So we're working with something very powerful here. Through the, through the power of awareness, we actually can begin to free ourselves to some extent, from its conditioning, from its grip. We need to be able to see it without judging, without judging 
the desire without judging ourselves for having it, but rather from that place of interest, from that place of investigation. So this is the first of the of the hindrances, this energy of wanting. As we see it clearly, and as we learn how to distinguish this desire from the feeling of metta, and I would really urge you to notice carefully the difference, that awareness allows us to actually make some wise choices in our lives. So the work that we're doing here is very consequential. We can really learn when to act and when to let go. This conditioning of desire is closely related to the second hindrance, which is that of aversion. And just as desire is the near enemy of metta, Aversion is what's called the far enemy because aversion is just the opposite of loving feeling. Aversion means ill will, anger, hatred, fear, annoyance, irritation, sorrow, grief. All have components of aversion in them. When does aversion arise? It arises when we don't get what we want. It's very basic. (laughs) We want something and we don't get it, so we get upset. Or the the other side of that is we have something that we don't want. You know, whether it's some bodily state or some situation or some person. Now, and just as an untrained mind gets ensnared by pleasant experience gets caught in desire, in the same way an untrained mind becomes reactive to unpleasant experience. This is our conditioning. Something unpleasant happens, something painful happens in our bodies, in our world. Something unpleasant, something painful, we don't like it. We want to push it away. We want to defend against it. We want to avoid it. We can see this very clearly in relationship to pain. Pain is a great teacher in meditation because it shows us so clearly what our relationship is to unpleasant things. Notice how your mind responds to painful feelings in the body. It can range from contraction, you know, we get tense behind it, or we try to push it away or ignore it or bargain with it. You know, okay, I'll watch you if you'll go away. (laughs) All of that is just an expression of aversion in the mind, dislike in the mind, anger in the mind. But our aversion is not limited to pain in the body. We can be thinking of things that have happened in the past or anticipating things that haven't even happened yet but imagining that they might happen in the future. You know, some unpleasant scenario, these thoughts come in the mind, and then we get angry, or we get afraid, or we get annoyed. 
And this is a very good example of what I mentioned this morning or yesterday. I forget about the painted tiger. You know, things arise in the mind. We look at it and get angry because we don't like it. It's quite amazing. <laughs> There's a version about situations. They can be situations on the retreat. Classic example of this happened in Burma. Burma is really hot, really hot. I mean, you're sitting and just the sweat is pouring down. So it's not, it's not pleasant. <laughs> well, in one of the halls, there were fans. And one of the yogis wanted the fans on, and one of the yogis wanted the fans off. So one got up and turned the switch on, the other got up and turned the switch off. They came to blows. This is in a meditation center. Now, practicing awareness, practicing mindfulness. Call it the fan wars. Actually, a similar thing happens here, not so much at this time of year, but the window wars. Because at different times of year, some people like windows open, fresh air, other people don't like the draft, so they close it. And just watching what happens in the mind. You know, from this very little example, we can understand how wars start. It's the same, el- it's the same force, you know, greatly expanded, but it's the same energy. It's something we don't like, strike out against it in one way or another. Now, and just like there's a Vipassana romance, there's also the phenomena of the Vipassana vendetta. <laughs> There's somebody on this retreat who you just can't stand. You've never spoken to them. You don't know them. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like how they take their food. You don't like what they're wearing, whatever. The mind is just projecting out, you know, this, this energy of aversion. We need to see it. We need to see how it's working. Aversion can arise within our practice in relationship to difficulties that come up. In the practice of anything, in learning how to do anything, we confront difficulties. That's part of any path at all. Whether it's the path of meditation, path of learning some sport or music or skill, whatever. How does the mind relate to the difficulties when they come? You know, to the boredom, to the frustration, to whatever. You can often tell by the tone of the phrases of metta. May you be happy. <laughs> you know, it goes from being a wish to a command, to an order. We can get angry about situations which, are mis- which we're misinterpreting or personalizing things which are basically non-personal. This happened to me a lot in practicing with Upandita, this Burmese monk, because he's very... Uh, what's the word? <laughs> he's a very strong character. 
I go in for an interview, and this this was early on in my practice with him, not so much after I got to know him. But he'd, I'd go in, and it's a pretty uh, formal situation. I'd go in, and he'd ask me questions about my practice, and my immediate interpretation was, he's testing me. And then all the panic, you know, about getting the right answer. Well, then he'd give me some advice, and my mind would immediately interpret it as a judgment. And he'd say, do this, and I didn't, oh, my practice is no good. And he's, he wasn't doing any of that. He was asking questions to find out what was going on. <laughs> and he was giving advice to be of some help. <laughs> but it was just very interesting, although it wasn't interesting right at that moment. <laughs> it became interesting. <laughs> just to see what my mind did with that and the kind of aversion and all the different forms of aversion that arose around that situation. One of the very helpful things to see when aversion, anger, annoyance, irritation, fear when all of these forms of aversion come up, it's very helpful to notice how we contract, how that energy is itself is a contraction. We get imprisoned in it, and the sense of self, of separation, of alienation becomes much stronger. Now, when aversion or anger is strong, the mind is very turbulent. It's not peaceful, it's not open, it's not calm. We don't see what's going on very clearly. So how to work with it? Now, this is a common conditioning. We've all experienced it. Just like desire, when anger arises in the mind or aversion of some kind, we have to recognize it. We need to see that it's happening. Otherwise, we get carried away in it just out of our habitual conditioning. Not judging the anger, not judging ourselves for having it. One way I've worked with a lot of the hindrances in the mind this came to me during one three-month course around Halloween. You know, because on Halloween you know, the kids come around trick-and-treating uh, or dressed up in costume. So when a ghost comes to your door, do you get frightened? No, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you kind of see the kid dressed up in the ghost costume and you kind of have all this meta towards the kid and you give it candy. Or a witch comes or a pirate comes. Anger in the mind is like a kid in Halloween costume. You know, can we see it in just that way? It's just this energy that's dressed up in the mind. It looks a certain way. We don't have to buy into it. We don't have to believe it. We just see it for what, oh, there's anger. There's this little kid dressed up in the angry costume. When we can see it in that way, it really ceases to be much of a problem. It takes a little presence of mind to, to do this. And we really have to be aware. We have to be mindful. We have to be paying attention. 
it's also helpful, especially when we're really caught. You know, we can't see it in this way very clearly, and we're caught in the anger or the aversion. We need to see if there are associated mind states around it. Because often there are associated emotions which are feeding the anger. For example, I've noticed in my experience, sometimes if I'm angry about something, it will be fed by the feeling of self-righteousness. I'm right. I should be angry because that person did this, 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 and this. And if I'm noticing the anger and not noticing the self-righteousness, it just keeps feeding it and I don't get unhooked. Or the underlying feeling might be one of hurt. You know, we really feel hurt by something or someone, which is making us angry. If we're not aware of the hurt and we're noting anger, 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 it's not going to be sufficient because there's something feeding it that we haven't yet recognized. So we really have to look at the whole situation, look at the whole constellation of what's happening. This feeling of aversion, feeling of anger, has a very strong pull in our minds. It's very seductive. And the Buddha described its particular quality of seduction and danger. He did it so perfectly. This is how, this is how the Buddha described it, anger, in one of the texts. He said, anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax murderously sweet. <laughs> and it really captures the whole experience of it. When we look carefully, we see it is a poison source. You know, it, it's the energy of ill will. It's the energy of hatred in one form or another. But it has this tremendous energy. It has a fevered climax. And there's this murderously sweet you know, because we feel strong in it. There are other ways to feel strong. One last way, of, or the many ways, one last one I'll mention, in working with aversion, and that is opening to the unpleasantness of the experience. Instead of reacting against it with aversion or anger, whatever the experience is, we actually open to the unpleasantness. So, for example, if there's pain that we're feeling aversion to, instead of contracting against it or trying to push it away, we relax into it. I mean, in some way, it's very counterintuitive because pain, get as far away as possible. This is just the opposite. Pain, let me go into it. Let me feel it. Let me open to it. Let me relax. We can do the same thing with unpleasant emotions, unpleasant mind states. Fear arises the anger itself as it's arising. Frustration, discouragement, whatever, can we open to it rather than close to it? 
Can we relax into it rather than fight it? This is tremendously important because our conditioned habit to close off to pain, the result of that is that it closes us off to the wellspring of metta and compassion within us. Now, we need to see this connection. Now, when we close off to suffering on the outside, close off to the suffering in the world, we don't want to let it in. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to see, to feel the suffering that's in the world. What happens? If we close off, if we resist, if we avoid, we become very indifferent. There's no compassion at work there. The compassion comes out of our willingness to be with the unpleasantness. We were walking down the street. I was just in New York last week. Of course, I mean, the problem of homelessness is so pervasive. And just to watch all of my different responses as I walk by, sometimes really open and connecting, sometimes walking by and I can really feel that, that wall of indifference, not seeing, not letting it in. For compassion, for metta to be there, we need to let it in. Exactly in the same way with the unpleasant experiences within us, with pain, with difficult emotions. Can we let it in? Can we open? That's where the metta will be. That's where the compassion will be. I'll just give you one example of this. It's in a way, it's a trivial example, but it, it really highlights this whole process. A few months ago, I was flying out uh, from New York uh, to Denver to teach a course out there. We're on the plane, and the plane is loaded. It's like every seat. And we taxi out to the runway, and we're just about to kind of and we'll go down the runway and take off. And the plane pulls over to the side, and we're just sitting. So I know you've all had. <laughs> and after we're sitting there a long time, the captain announces, there's too much weight on the plane. <laughs> and there were high winds in Denver, and at Denver's at 5,000 feet, and there's some, I don't know, something aerodynamically. With the high winds, it couldn't land safely with as much weight as it had. So we're pulling back into the gate, and everybody who's making connections has to get off, and their baggage will be removed. So you can imagine. One guy on the plane got furious. He got so angry. We were at the gate, and I was sitting toward the front. He came charging up to the front of the plane and was screaming at these flight attendants as if they were (laughs) making the decision. And it was just really fascinating to watch and to see what was going on. Basically, that expression, that very obvious expression of anger, was coming out of an inability to be with some unpleasant feelings. It's frustrating. I think everybody on the plane was frustrated about it. To the degree that somebody could simply be with that, and hold it and open to it. It's okay. It's okay to feel this unpleasantness. 
then there might actually have been some, at least understanding of the situation. The inability to be with that unpleasantness, to be with that difficulty, got vented out in terms of anger. So then I was watching my own reaction to this guy. (laughs) And I just saw my mind do the same little dance. It was an internal. But at first I could see my mind really resisting, reacting against him making such a scene because it was unpleasant. You know, and there were all these judgments about him. And then when I got okay with feeling that unpleasant, when I let it, it's okay. Let me just be with this energy. Then I could actually start feeling some compassion for this person. Do you see how it's all connected? This is very important because it's how we're living our lives. So in working with aversion, when it comes in the mind, that is a signal, that is a feedback that's telling us there's something unpleasant going on that we're not open to yet, that we're not allowing. We're fighting against something. So we can really use that as a chance to open as a chance to touch the compassion within us. There are five hindrances. (laughs) I just got through two of them. (laughs) I really like talking about desire and aversion because they're so juicy. (laughs) And there's really so much to learn about them. Well, let's say I'll try to speak quickly. <laughs> the third of the hindrances is an old favorite. It's sloth and torpor. You know, it's just that quality in the mind which is sluggish, which is sleepy, which is heavy, which is dull. And as you know, when that force is strong in the mind, it's very difficult to either be doing the practice, to be aware, There's no vitality in the mind. The mind is actually shrinking back and contracting. But there's a deeper meaning to sloth and torpor than sleepiness. Because passing bouts of sleepiness, they're quite common, and they're really not that significant. It's fine. You know, sometimes the mind feels sleepy, and we go through it, and you try to pay attention, and it passes. And as the retreat goes on, you'll see that it passes more and more quickly. But the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor, of how this force works in the mind, is it's that quality which retreats from difficulties. Instead of, it's the opposite of energy. Energy meets difficulties, sort of rises to the challenge of what's ever happening. When sloth and torpor is present, something hard comes up, something difficult comes up. We're feeling a little tired. Oh, I'll go take a nap. Instead of being with it and just going through whatever the experience is, we pull back. You might find this in doing the metta, in the repetition of the phrases. Have you had the experience with some... I just don't want to do another phrase. You know, the mind just gets tired of doing it. It gets 
That is the energy of sloth and torpor. It's, it's just too much. It wants to pull back. It, there's a way of working with it. And one of the ways is recognizing that that's what's happening. It doesn't always mean that we bulldoze ahead because that might be counterproductive. But it can mean, yeah, I see this sloth and torpor in the mind. I see this kind of retreating from what's happening. Take a few deep breaths, kind of settle back, open up a little bit, and then continue not to give up. We need to learn to work with this because if we give in over and over to this to this energy of sloth and torpor, not only does it make our practice very sluggish, it really takes the delight out of our lives. You know, when we're, when we're continually retreating from challenge. Desire, aversion, sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is restlessness and agitation. Basically, this happens when there's too much energy and not enough concentration. There's a lot of energy either in the mind or body, and the mind is not concentrated enough to hold it. So what we need to do at that time is to actually strengthen the concentration, strengthen the one-pointedness. When you're feeling restless, when you're feeling agitated, there's one image which, which may help you remember how to work with it. It's an image of a camera with two different kinds of lens. You can have a zoom lens and you can have a wide-angle lens. You can use each of these lenses when you're restless, sometimes zooming in just to the precise object concentrates the mind and smooths out the restlessness. Sometimes that doesn't work. Mind is too agitated and there's not enough power, there's not enough one-pointedness to really calm things down. So then try the wide-angle lens. Wide-angle lens means we open up our awareness and take in the whole agitated state, not getting lost in the details, we take in the whole picture. We make a very big frame. It's as if we frame our experience, chaos, confusion, restlessness, agitation, worry, whatever it is. By making a very big frame around it all, it's as if we've stepped outside of it. And in that stepping outside and just opening to it, again, the mind settles down. The last of the hindrances <laughs> is doubt. I'll just very briefly speak about it because if we don't understand how doubt is working in our practice and in our lives, it is a huge obstruction. In some way, it is the most difficult of all the hindrances. 
Because doubt is that voice in the mind of indecision, of perplexity. Can I do this? Is this the right practice? They don't know what they're talking about. Maybe it's the right practice, but it's not the right time for me. I'll come back next year and I'll do it. As long as we are buying in to these doubting voices, we don't do anything. We don't accomplish anything. The Buddha talked of doubt. He he characterized it as being a thorny mind, which is continually jabbing us. And if you notice the quality when doubt is present, you will notice that. What happens when we get jabbed repeatedly? We get quite irritated. multiple hindrance attack. Out of the doubt, all of the others have come. There's one aspect of doubt that is responsible for its great seductive power. Because we can get caught in it very easily. And that is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, we hear all these thoughts in the mind. Oh, is this practice right? And are they teaching it right? And can I do it? And we get deceived into thinking that this is our voice of wisdom. Really? Yeah. I'm really taking a look at this. (laughs) Why is it a masquerade? Why is it not really wisdom? Because there are domains of experience beyond the range of thought. Just imagine sort of debating the merits of Mozart based on music theory without ever listening to the music. No matter how much one knows and how much one thinks about it, until we've heard the music, we don't know. We don't have the experience of it. Or debating the, you know, the quality of a good meal without actually eating the food. It's important before we undertake anything to really address some basic questions. Does this seem worth doing? Do I want to put my effort into this for some period of time? But once we make that decision, then we need to do it. We need to do it fully, basing our evaluation, our assessment on our own actual experience, not on this little voice in the mind which keeps jabbing us. It's not difficult to work with doubt if we see that it's happening. It's just when it goes unnoticed that it becomes such a powerful force. 
That's a sign that it's an hour. <laughs> All of these states, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, sluggishness, restlessness, doubt, they are all visitors to the mind. They're not intrinsic to the mind. The mind, the nature of the mind is awareness. It's pure. It's clear. But these forces come as visitors. If we're not aware, they exert an enormous influence. Not only in our practice. They're not just hindrances to our practice. They're hindrances in our lives and how we're living. When we are aware, it's like, that light shines through them, through them and they're really not much of a problem at all. I'll just close with uh, something the Buddha said to uh, one of his students. And it really has to do with what we're doing right here in terms of seeing for ourselves all of these qualities of the mind, seeing for ourselves what brings happiness, what brings freedom. Buddha said that the gift of truth is the highest gift and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste and the joy of truth is the greatest joy. And we each have to taste this truth for ourselves. That's what we're doing here together. Let's sit for just a couple of minutes. <laughs> 